Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 551 with Pat Lanchoni. Pat's going to share the fundamental thing that separates the great leaders from the not-so-great leaders. You'll learn, one, the mentality that separates great leaders from the rest. Two, why you shouldn't be afraid of, quote, micromanaging, end quote. And three, how leaders can have more joyful difficult conversations. So if you want to check out the show notes or transcript or links to items we've referenced, tap it in your podcast app player's show notes or episode description, or drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep551. Now here's Pat's story. Pat is the founder of The Table Group and the author of 11 books, which have sold over 5 million copies and been translated into more than 30 languages. The Wall Street Journal called him one of the most in-demand speakers in America. He's addressed millions of people at conferences and events around the world in the past 15 years, and Pat has written or been featured in numerous publications, including Harvard Business Review, Inc., Fortune, Fast Company, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and Business Week. As CEO, Pat spends his time writing books and articles related to leadership and organizational health, speaking to audiences interested in those topics and consulting to CEOs and their teams. Prior to founding The Table Group, Pat worked at Bain & Company, hey, me too, Oracle Corporation, and Sybase. Pat lives in the Bay Area with his wife and four boys. Big thanks to Pat for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients to your own compensation provider compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Pat. Pat, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be with you, Pete. Well, I've been so excited to chat with you here, and I've read several of your books over many years, so I think we're going to have a good one. I'd love to start by hearing, so you, you've spent a lot of years working with leaders and teams. If there's a, a particularly surprising, counterintuitive, fascinating discovery you've made across your career in terms of what makes teams successful or unsuccessful, what is that thing? Wow, there's a lot there. Just breaking the ice. <laughs> I think the thing I would say is it's it's messier than people realize. And the very best teams, the very best organizations, the very best marriages, the very best things in the world are far messier than people like to think they are. And that you have to kind of accept that and be good with that. And that's what makes it interesting. It's never neat and tidy and perfect. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that might be one of the meta things I've learned. Yes. Well, I think that kind of, you know, goes right into what I was wanting to ask about next. So within that, what do you think is the core fundamental root of leaders when, when they fail to achieve organizational health? What's behind that? Well, there's a lot of different things, but as an individual, I would say 
a lack of humility and vulnerability is probably the single greatest thing. And that is it really takes a leader to be vulnerable enough to admit what they're not good at and what they don't know and humble enough to realize they're not more important than the people they lead and that it's good to be vulnerable and transparent. And so many leaders, if they're either insecure or self-protective, they really limit their ability to be successful and the organizations as well. So I would say it's humility and vulnerability is at the core. And so, yeah, that, that really tees up something I've been so curious about. The, the humility, the vulnerability. When you open the book, The Advantage, with a really great story in which I could just visualize the scene. You're sitting with the CEO and watching the, the different programs that their, their workers have initiated across the year. This is at Southwest Airlines. Okay. All right. So it's Southwest Airlines. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you're hearing some really cool story after really cool story. There's clearly a lot of good organizational health and vibes going on there. And you ask the CEO, hey, so how come your competitors aren't doing this? And he says, honestly, I think they believe it's beneath them. And, and those, those words just really stuck with me. And so what are some examples of things that people don't do that they think maybe are beneath them that really we should start doing? That's a great question. In fact, my last book, my most recent book, which is just out now, is called The Motive. And what it talks about is if you're not a humble leader, if you're not doing it for service and for responsibility, but for yourself, you're probably not going to do many of these things. And the things that leaders who are motivated by the wrong things tend to, they don't like to repeat themselves. Now, that sounds crazy, but the leader of yeah. Southwest Airline, I've seen him over the course of almost 20 years in various settings, and he has no problem standing up and reiterating the same messages to his people again and again and again, because he realizes it's not about looking cool and it's not about entertaining mm -hmm. him. It's about helping his people stay on topic and reinforcing what matters. And so here is probably one of the most successful CEOs in the last 50 years, a guy who, by the way, if he walked into your office right now, you wouldn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. And you might not even know his name if I asked you right now. And yet he's run the most successful company in America over the last, you know, he's been doing this for 25 years. It's not about him. He constantly repeats himself. He is the CRO of Southwest Airlines, which I call the chief reminding officer. And he's good with that. So that's one of the things that people don't do. And that's not beneath him. It's not beneath him to get up and constantly tell the stories and reinforce the messages in different ways. One of the other things that's not beneath him is to actually manage his people. It sounds crazy, but a lot of CEOs are like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I shouldn't have to manage people anymore. So I'm going to hire people. I'm going to trust them to do their jobs. I'm going to just go focus on the stuff I want to do. That's not what a great leader does. A great leader realizes whether I'm running a billion dollar company and I'm at a senior executive or whether I'm running a startup and I have 12 people sitting around me, I have to manage my people might sound tedious, but I have to do it. Another thing that great leaders have to do is run great meetings. And mm -hmm. so many leaders say, I hate meetings. And as a result, they just kind of mail it in or they avoid them or try to go to as few as possible. But a great leader has to make meetings great. Well, so that's a good, a good list there. And I want to talk about the management bit for a, a moment. So we had Bruce Tolgan on the show back in episode 302, who, who discussed what he called the, the crisis of under management. Mm, I love it. And uh, I thought that was, that was very resonant. We, we kind of covered some similar themes here. And you've got a quote, I think it's from The Motive, where you say, hey, it's, it's not babysitting, it's management, and it's your job. Can you sort of 
dig into this this misconception between uh, babysitting, micromanagement, management, sort of where's the line, what should be done and, and what's not being done enough? Well, I want to connect with that guy. I've never heard of that. Did he said that? Because I feel the same way, the crisis of under management. You know, we live in a world where I think people don't like to be held accountable. I think that's a social phenomenon as well. And so what they do is they throw out the idea of you're micromanaging me Mm -hmm. and managers. That's like the, I don't know what that, that's like one of those unanswerable things that people don't know. And and managers back off like, and the problem is, no, no, we're under managing people. If micromanaging means I know what my people are working on, I know how they're doing, I'm available to give them coaching and I'm checking in with them to see how they're doing, then let's all micromanage more. And I think that we've come into that place where too many people get away with trying to justify not being held accountable by accusing people of being a micromanager. No good leader is afraid of that. All right. And so I just, I agree completely with what Bruce said. And I think that it's our job. And if we don't really want to know what people are working on and coach them and and be responsible for making sure they're successful, then we don't want to be a manager or a leader. I hear you. And so then, so you laid out a couple of things like you understand what they're working on uh, mm-hmm. and the status of those things, and you are available to to chime in and and do some some coaching as necessary. And so then, what is too much? What is true micromanagement? You know, look, sound, feel like. You know, it's a great question, and it's one of those things like we promote conflict, and people say, "Well, what's too much conflict?" And what I would like to say is, "Well, here's the deal: ninety five percent of people." engage in too little conflict. So rather than worrying about what's too much, let's realize that's a high-class problem. Now, I'll answer the question, though, but I would say that most managers undermanage. What's too much? I suppose too much is asking somebody to give you a daily accounting of, their, of how they're spending their time and asking them to prove every day what they've accomplished and questioning every decision they make and not giving them any freedom and autonomy. The truth is, though, I think in all the jobs I've ever had, and most of the people I've talked to, there's actually very little of that that goes on in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Most people are undermanaged. You know, it's funny. I actually do ask for a daily accounting of my people's time, but it's, it's because they're, they're in another country and we don't have much face-to-face. And it's like... That's different. Six lines long. <laughs> most of the time, I did this and then this and then this, and tomorrow I plan to do that. It's like, perfect, thank you. You're not micromanaging. You're saying, I just want to know what you're doing so we can yeah. make sure that we're all move, rowing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You're not doing that because you're questioning whether they're golfing or oh, watching too no, much TV. Right. See, and and by the way, you doing that at the risk of saying you're overmanaging is far better than saying, well, I once a month or so we check in and I see how they're doing. Mm -hmm. Successful businesses don't undermanage. They know what everybody's doing and they and they help each other. Okay, cool. Well, so we're, we're situated there. Let's dig into more about the, the latest book here. So we're talking about the motive. And right. so your, your core message there is, is that there are different motives that, that drive leaders. And can you uh, break this down for us a little more? Yeah. You know, this is the 12th book I've written. And if somebody were to say, which book should I start with? I would say this one, because this is the first book where instead of talking about how to lead or how to manage an organization, I address the first question, which is why? Mm-hmm. Why do you want to be a leader in the first place? And some people have the wrong motivation for that. And I realized that because years ago, Pete, I was talking to a bunch of CEOs and giving them advice like it was at a conference. And I was giving them just straightforward advice about how to deal with things. And there was a handful of them that weren't writing anything down. They were just dismissing everything. And some of the advice seemed really straightforward and other people were getting it. And I thought, you know, I, I was starting to figure out what was going on with them. 
And I realized, you know, if they're doing this for the wrong reason, none of my advice makes sense to them. And the wrong reason is this. I want to be a leader because it's a reward for a lifetime of hard work. I've arrived. It's a title. It allows me to focus on the things I like to do. And it's kind of cool that I get to be the leader. And there are a lot of people that go into leadership, young and old, for that reason. And that's a terrible reason to be a leader. You know, when I go to college graduations and people say to these people, go out and be a leader. I want to yell, no, please don't be a leader unless you're doing it for the right reasons. Because see, the right reason to be a leader is to say, I am taking on a burden and a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And the economics of it are going to be very bad. I'm going to pour far more of my energy into being a leader so I can serve these people than I'm going to get back from it. And I have my eyes wide open. I realize it's a responsibility and a duty, and it's going to be hard. If you do that, then you're going to do the right things as a leader. You're going to say, yeah, I don't want to have to have a difficult conversation. That's one of the other things leaders don't do. Mm -hmm. I have to have hard conversations with people. It is my job. Do you know how many CEOs I've worked with, Pete, who do it for the wrong reasons, who will do anything to avoid having a hard conversation with somebody? They'll even fire somebody without that conversation just so they never have to have it. Well, yes, I wanted you to actually go deeper onto this. So uh, I think it was in uh, the motive in which yep. there was a tale of uh, someone replaced a chief information officer. So so one of the CEO's direct reports, you called mm. him Fred. Uh, <laughs> give, us the, give us the whole story. It's, it's a yeah. winner. And that's not fiction. That's, yeah. you know, all my books are fiction, but that's not fiction. That's in the back of the book where I talk. So a true story, a famous CEO of a big company who I don't think was a great leader for obvious reasons when I tell this story, he had a, a chief technology officer, actually. I think I changed it to... And I knew the guy because we were doing some consulting in the organization. And the CEO wanted to bring in a different CTO, chief technology officer. And instead of sitting down with the old one and explaining that I'm going to hire somebody to replace you, he just hired a new one. And one day, the old CTO comes to work and sees an email that goes out to the company saying... Hey, John Jackson is our new CTO. Let's all welcome him. And this guy's like, I thought I was the CTO. <laughs> and so he calls the administrative assistant. I, I, can, I can't make this up, right? In fact, this happened about 20 years ago. And I wonder if, if I'm making it up because like this seems too crazy. Somebody's sitting here in the room listening to this going, nope, you didn't make it up. It was true. So this guy calls the executive assistant to the CEO and says, I'd like to meet with the CEO. And he, they just can't find any time to meet with him. Oh, he's busy. Weeks, literally like weeks go by. This guy's coming to work knowing that there's another guy in the company with his title. Finally, he's about to get on a private plane with a CEO, small private plane. He says, I'll finally have a chance to talk to him. They get on the plane. The CEO closes his eyes, pretends to sleep the entire time, never speaks to him. Finally, the CTO just quits. Mm -hmm. And that's not just an interesting, wacky story. It goes to show you there are certain people that are leaders, but they don't have the courage or the character to sit down with somebody and say, I need to give you some tough feedback or I need to let you know what's going on. Now, I get it. All of us are tempted to do that. And I'm not saying we should go around like, hey, I just all I want to do is have difficult conversations with people. But that's our job. And if a leader isn't willing to do that, it's probably because they're doing it for the wrong reason. They're like, hey, I'm supposed to have fun. Hey, I'm the leader of this department or this organization. I'm the principal of the school, the pastor of this church, the CEO of this company. I should get to pick and choose what I spend my time on. And that doesn't sound interesting to me. That's a fundamental problem in an organization. Well, and I'll tell you, even though, you know, my team is small and those words really 
resonated and echoed back to me in terms of, wait, am I just doing this because it's fun? Am I just not doing that because it's not fun? <laughs> and it's really a, uh, quite a look in the mirror in terms oh. of like, yeah, uh, oops. <laughs> One of the people that endorsed the book, we sent the book to a CEO of a company and he sent it back and he said, yeah, I'll be, I'll endorse it. And his quote was, this book rocked me to my core. I wish I'd read it 20 years ago. Hey, we all are tempted to do things for the wrong reasons. I look back at my tenure here at my own consulting firm and realize there were times when I was largely doing it for myself mm -hmm. and I wasn't good. And so we can read this and go, okay, I'm, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. I have to do it for the right reason. So life isn't black and white. We're not buying it. We're, we're, we're capable of changing, but sometimes we have to be asked that question or ask ourselves that question. Is my motive really the right one? Yes. So thank you for that. That's good. And then at the same time, you talk about there's suffering, there's sacrifice associated with, with leadership. And yet you've also got a concept called joyful accountability. How does that fall into things? Well, that question is a great one. And it, the answer to both of those comes back to a very famous CEO who's become a friend of mine named Alan Mulally. Now, Alan Mulally was the guy who turned the Ford Motor Company around about, I don't know, 10 years ago. He took over the company when they were hemorrhaging money and they were about to go out of business and he took it over and didn't take any money from the government. He's an amazing leader. I mentioned him because both of the questions you just asked me relate to him. First of all, he came to visit us after he retired and he said, I don't like that part in your book, Pat, the advantage when you talk about management being a sacrifice, that there's suffering involved. It's a privilege. And I was like, Alan, that's not how the world works anymore. He was like a boy scout from Kansas. I think I even said, you're not in Kansas anymore, Alan. And he thought, well, why would anybody not see that job as a privilege? And I said, you know how many people want to be the CEO because they think it's cool and because they have the right to do whatever they want? And if we don't help people understand the hard part, we are inviting them to take a job that they don't want. So he got that. But the thing about Alan was he had this way of holding people accountable. I mean, here he turned the Ford Motor Company around. I think he said he only fired one or two people. So you're thinking, wait a second, how do you turn a company? This was the DMV, basically, that he was taking over. <laughs> and he said, you know what he would do? He'd see somebody behave in a way that was contrary to what he wanted. He would go to them and he'd say, hey, I noticed that you were doing that. And they'd say, yeah, I don't really want to do this thing you asked me. And he'd go, that's okay. And they go, really? And he goes, oh, yeah, we could still be friends. But you can't work here if you're not going to behave that way. So it's up to you. Let me know. It's, you can either opt in and act this way or you don't have to. And, we, and honestly, we can still be friends. He wasn't being snarky. Yeah. And people opted out or they opted in. And very few times did he actually have to manage them out of the organization. Because the point of the matter is, if you hold people accountable and tell them there's no breathing room there, they're going to choose the right path. Right. In or out. And so he had this way of joyfully, he wasn't afraid to do it. And I think that's why he was able to turn that company around. He would have hard conversations that other people would just agonize over and he go, what's the big deal? They can work someplace else. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great lesson. No, and I think that that is great. And, and I think there's, I don't know, just fear in the mix or maybe litigation, lawyers, lawsuits, wrongful termination. It, it seems like, I guess those things do happen, but I, I have a feeling that these are kind of hobgoblins of the mind that is, are just sort of just trying to feed the justification to to avoid doing the hard thing. So I'd love for you to, to maybe zoom in there. So let's say, hey, you, you know you got to have a conversation. You don't want to have the conversation, but here you are. You're tempted to <laughs> pretend you're asleep on a plane or duck it by, by any means necessary. How do you 
get your summon the stuff from inside to, to do what needs to be done. I think that as you, you mentioned the word justification. I think the false justification we use, and I've certainly done this in the past because I'm a wuss. I'm going to tell you I'm a wuss. Mm-hmm. I don't like doing this either. Is if we justify it by saying, man, I really care about the people that work for me and I just don't want them to feel bad. So I'm going to avoid telling them this thing because it could make them really sad. That's a lie. And I used to do that. And then one day I realized, oh, wait a second, who I'm really wanting to avoid feeling bad? Me. Because I'm going to be uncomfortable. They're not going to feel better when I don't tell them because it's going to come back to bite them later. Sure thing. Either they're fired or their career doesn't progress or yeah. they, they get less cool, fun, interesting responsibilities. Right. One way or the other, it hurts. Exactly. And so I, I was like, if I love these people and I use the word L, I should love the people that work for me. Even if I don't like them all the time, I should love them. And if I love them, I have to tell them the truth. I mean, I have four sons, right? Do I think that I'm doing them any favor by not telling them the truth about things they need to get better at? No, I love my children to deprive them of that is crazy. If I'm a manager, I should feel the same way. So once I, I kind of debunked that myth that I was actually a nice manager by not saying things to people, it gave me the courage to do it. And I still have to do that. And I struggle with it all the time. Oh, that's excellent. And so when you say that you need to love your people, but not necessarily to like your people, how are you defining love in this context? Love means I'm willing to do something that benefits them even at my own expense. I think love is a verb. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm committed to them. I'm not even enjoying their company right now. And maybe that's yeah. my own fault or whatever else. But I am willing <laughs> to do what's in their best interest ahead of mine. Yeah. You and I are both Catholic. It's a biblical definition, right? To Certainly. You know, I was just reading in the Bible today about loving your enemies, right? Well, if Mm -hmm. we're supposed to love our enemies and a person who works for me, who I actually, they're on my team and I have to tell them something that's going to be hard for them to hear. I think I I should be able to love them for sure. Yes. And, and, and as you you talk about your sons, I'm thinking about uh, my son right now. He's two years old and boy, he's in a habit of, of doing some screaming when he can't get what he wants. And (laughs) so we we keep trying to say, Hey, that really hurts. (laughs) So my advice to you is never discipline him. Always let him do whatever he wants. And then when he's 20, he's going to be great. (laughs) We would never do that. (laughs) No, but so many leaders are like, Oh, I don't want to tell this person. It's like, I'm going to have to remove this from you and it's for your own good. And it's going to cause you to scream, which is going to cause me to feel stressed and uh, unhappy. (laughs) But here I am making that sacrifice on your behalf. Much like I'm going to share some feedback with the person and that's going to make me uncomfortable and it'll probably make them uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe, yes, maybe, yes, maybe no in the moment, but ultimately has, has positive consequences downstream. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, Pete, I'm going to tell you that So my kids are 21, 21, 17, and 13. I have four boys. I know I've learned more about being a leader by being a parent. I think half of these books come about because of the crossover between being a parent and a leader at work and teamwork and all the things. There's so much in family life that crosses over to business and around humility and around accountability and around all these different things. So it's fascinating. My poor wife, because we have to Mm. apply this together. Luckily, she's interested in it too. And my kids are now, yeah. even my 13-year-old the other day said, Dad, this stuff is really interesting. That's cool. So it's going to be fun watching you. What's your two-year-old's name? Jonathan. Jonathan. It's going to be fun talking to you in five years when he's seven. Oh, yes. Yes, I think so, too. That's an exciting thing. So there's a, here's a scenario I thought about run by you just because yes. I was thinking about our upcoming interview and prepping some stuff. And I was also doing some training for an organization. We'll keep it broad in the health 
space. <laughs> so right before the training started, we're sort of chatting a little bit. And then I heard someone ask, so an assistant who was helping us out, oh, hey, what's up with all the contractors and stuff, you know, next door? They said, oh, uh, there's uh, this executive who's, and they're building out a suite on this floor for his office. And then they said, really? So we're cramped on space. We always mm. have to do this and this and this. And then, uh, and this guy uh, needs a suite. And so we're going to have even less space. And then uh, the assistant said, oh yeah, they might actually take over this conference room that we're in too. They still have to decide that. And then, and they just sort of, you know, shook their heads. And so, so then I got, I got you in my ear thinking about organizational health and uh, conflict and, and all these things. And, and I just thought, I just, I said this out loud. I was just like, wow. So it seems like you perceive some sort of wrong or injustice is occurring here. Uh, and yet I have a feeling that they're probably never going to know about it. And you're just going to feel a little bit, a uh, little bit miffed, a little bit resentful over it over time. And, it was, and I was like, is that accurate or am I way off base here? I was like, I'm just, you know, pontificating. And they said, and a couple more people chimed in. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about it, but it's because they didn't ask and they don't care. And I thought, man, this is the stuff. I think this is kind of like where the rubber meets the road of an organizational health. It's like there are, on the one hand, you could say, hey, this executive, it was hard to recruit him. He needs some things to be won over. And then it's like, is it really their job or duty or responsibility to explain every decision they make to the, the people who also dwell in the office? But at the same time, if you don't get into that messy stuff, you're just going to have this resentment and bitterness and and stuff unspoken in the mix. And it's harmful. So, so Pat, putting you on the spot. How should healthy organizations deal with just these everyday kinds of things that need to be addressed? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, those people are right to wonder what's going on. Yeah. Secondly, it's not their job to go ask why this is going on. <laughs> somebody else knows this and they're not doing it. And so I would say either, either somebody's letting that CEO or that executive down by not questioning it and preventing him or her from doing something that, that looks really bad. Well, yeah, and that person's going to have poor relationships with all the people who are kind of miffed that he's taking up all the space. Or he knows and he doesn't care. Um, yeah, possible. Okay, this happened to me once. In fact, the first book I wrote and the first part of that first book came from this too. So I worked with the CEO of a company and he took over when the company was kind of in trouble and everybody was, they were laying people off, literally. And so offices were coming open and an office would come open and people go, oh, can I have Fred's office now that he's gone? And so the facilities people, their numbers were actually going up because they were doing all these moves at a time when the company was hurting. So the CEO rightly said, okay, it's time for a little adult supervision. And he announced that there would be a freeze on all office moves and facilities. Okay, that made sense. The very next week, there, was a, there were contractors in the main headquarters, in the lobby where people came, building out the conference room that they used for customers and for meetings and turning it into his office. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they had to make it bigger was because he was having office furniture flown in from the East Coast and they needed to make it fit. So they had to change the shape of the conference room. And I didn't know at the time, but we look at it now. It's, his motivation was not to serve others. His motivation was about himself. And it was completely consistent with who he was. And that is the problem. Now, if he's doing that and he's just clueless, 
boy, somebody could be his hero and say, hey, do you realize what kind of a message you're sending? And that's why a leader's job is to surround themselves with people that are going to tell them the truth and push on them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a fantastic example that you gave, one that I've seen too. And I think it probably is an issue of motive. Yeah. And I think that's, that's quite likely. And then I, so I'm wondering in this kind of a situation, what would be the ideal healthy way for leadership and, and teams to address this issue? It's like, Hey, we got some competing demands on our, our limited space. How do we hash that out optimally? Right. What I would say is this. So that executive, his team, it's a, he, it sounds like his team. The question is, do they have the kind of trust, vulnerability, and conflict on their team? to put these things on the table, because that's where it belongs. And he has to be the one that to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, you guys could ask me any question and challenge me. Even if I disagree with you, I'm gonna be honest with you about how I feel. I'm not gonna punish you for that. So the question is, why isn't that team having those honest conversations? And the leader has to take it upon himself to create that kind of trust. All right, fair enough, well said. Pat, tell me anything else you wanna make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh. No, but you know, I'm going to go back to the question you asked at the beginning. And you said, what's one of the big insights? The big insight, and I, I touched on it before, is this. What I've come to realize is that if you're a leader and you constantly remind people about what they need to do to improve, 95% of the time, more, they're going to either improve or they're going to go someplace else where they fit better. And I think if I could give any leader advice, it would be become completely immune to your fear of saying to somebody, hey, you did that thing. You talk too much during meetings. Hey, you did it again. Hey, you did it again. Most human beings, if they're constantly reminded about how they need to improve, are gonna do it because they're tired of being reminded or they're gonna leave because they don't wanna change. Mm -hmm. And if every company did that, there'd be far less firings, which are very painful, and far less lawsuits. And companies would actually start attracting the right people and repelling the others. And it usually comes down to a lack of courage on the part of leaders. So that's one of the things I've learned. So I think that's it. Okay. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Theodore Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy. That's a fantastic quote. And then my favorite Bible verse, it's my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that sometimes I think we make things harder than they need to be because of our pride and because it's self-oriented and things like that. So hmm. those would be my favorite too. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I like that one I learned in social psychology where the person, like if you go down the street and you ask somebody, hey, will you help me do this? A high percentage of people will say yes. And then if you introduce a financial element to that, fewer people would actually say yes because now they feel like it's an economic decision. Oh, so you're gonna pay people and then fewer of them wanna do it because they're getting paid. Yeah, like you're unloading things out of your car and you say, hey, can you help me carry this across the street? I need to unload my car. And like X percentage would say, yeah, I'll help you. And then you said, now offer them $5 to do it. And fewer of them would actually say yes. And I think sometimes mm -hmm. we think that people are coin-operated. And we, it's actually a disincentive to do that. And people's inclination toward helping others and doing the right thing is much higher because it's the right thing to do. And I think companies do that too. They're like, we need to pay people more. And it's like, no, how about treat them well, get to know them, thank them, help them understand why their job matters. People really want to work hard. Great volunteers at a church or a nonprofit work harder than people being paid in a for-profit because they're doing it for the right reasons. That's not to say, hey, go cut your people's pay or don't offer people money. But I think sometimes we overemphasize the financial incentive of behavior and don't appeal to people's better nature. And how about a favorite book? 
Dean Koontz is my favorite author, and he wrote a book called Brother Odd. He has a series called Odd Thomas, but there's a book called Brother Odd, which I think is fantastic. It's funny. It's mostly really deep and funny and clever. Oh, thank you. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. The whiteboard. You know, in mm-hmm. my office here, we just added on to our office and have a new cottage. And we were like, what artwork should we put on the wall? And we just painted it with that. There's a new paint that's like makes, turns a wall into a whiteboard. And boy, do we use it. And good stuff comes out. I'm looking at stuff right now where we solve problems and then we leave it up there. So the whiteboard. Oh, cool. In my, ha- my house at home, I should have whiteboards in every wall. <laughs> and uh, a favorite habit, something you do that helps you become more awesome at your job. Well, it helps me in my job and it helps me in my life. And that's praying the rosary. Very good. 15 minutes a day. Usually do it in the shower. You do a whole rosary in 15 minutes? I can do it in 15 minutes. And usually that's when I'm flooded with peace and it helps me think through my day and be more charitable and kind. And how about a particularly resonant nugget, something you share that really seems to connect with folks and they quote it back to you again and again? I always like to say the truth is don't make the truth. I mean, the perfect, the enemy of the good. And people repeat that back, you know, because I'm a believer in the 80-20 principle. Get the first part done and we'll figure it out from there. And so I think that's one that probably comes back my way. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to our website, which is tablegroup.com, T-A-B-L-E, like kitchen table, tablegroup.com. And we have a podcast also called At the Table with Patrick Lynchoni. And we just started it this year and we're having fun. We're not as professional as you. You, this is, you said you had a 302, three, 300 episodes already? Oh, that was, yeah, Bruce Tolkien, episode 302. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think we're at like 25, but, but we're loving it. We're loving it. We're enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely fun. And uh, well, I, hopefully you're getting better and better as you get in there. We're trying. Cool. And, and you have a final uh, challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. You know, I think that take the risk of, of speaking truth to people in kindness and good things happen. And we tend to think that the, it, the cost is going to be too high to do that. But if you speak truth in love and kindness and humility, you'll be your, a leader's hero. Because we're not all CEOs, but if you can go to the leader, nine times out of 10, they're going to be glad that you told them. And five times out of 10, they're actually going to listen to it and make you a hero. Four times, they might ignore you. One time, they might not like it, but it's, it's always the best thing to do. I think people are too risk averse when it comes to pouring into a leader upward. So manage up, manage up. Pat, this has been a treat. I wish you lots and lots of, of luck and, and blessings as you're pursuing these adventures. Thank you, Pete. And, and have fun with Jonathan and your family. What I personally most took away from this conversation with Pat, beyond the idea of praying the rosary in the shower, which sounds like a fine move, but uh, more universally, if you don't know what a rosary is, I think it's such a game changer to think about in those difficult conversation moments when you think, oh, you know, that would be uncomfortable, that'd be unpleasant, I don't want to anger them or make them upset, is to really just do that gut check, that reality check and say, hmm, is my worry, is my concern more about me, my selfishness, my desire to not feel uncomfortable, or is it about serving them? And often I think you'll discover that, yep, it's just me. And what would really help them out is sharing what they need to know to improve, to do better at their job. And it's just a matter of figuring out how do you articulate that in in a great way that they can receive it, as opposed to just sort of dodging the the bullets and and shirking away in fear and, and not helping people out, serving them, loving them. So A great reframe from Pat. Hope that makes a world of difference in your universe. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, that's over at 551 or episode 551, awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep551, if you will. 
And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest. We got Jonah Berger. He is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. You may have heard of him talk about Contagious and his other books. He is a real sharp dude. And he's going to talk about how you can be persuasive. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.